Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. At the age of 41, Julie Mason and her 8-year-old son, Keegan Bruce, were living at 1137 Northwest 80th Street in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. At about 5 a.m. on December 14, 2016, someone called 911 after seeing flames coming out of the home where Julie and Keegan were living. When firefighters arrived, they found two bodies inside a bedroom. Julie was pronounced dead at the scene. However, Keegan was still hanging on to life. He was rushed to the hospital, where he died of his injuries a few hours later. His autopsy revealed that he had numerous stab wounds on the neck and head, smoke inhalation, and suffered from severe burns. Julie had been doused with gasoline and was stabbed to death before the fire was set in what can be described as an overkill stabbing. Julie's mother, Ruthie Mason, had to drive several hours from Texas after hearing the tragic news. She said she couldn't figure out why anyone would want to hurt her daughter and grandson. Police suspected Julie might have been sexually assaulted during the attack. As investigators were looking for answers, they came across career criminal Jimmy McCoy, who immediately became a suspect in the horrific double homicide. While looking for prior sexual assault reports in that area, detectives discovered McCoy was listed as a suspect in the rape of an elderly woman down the street from where Julie and Keegan were murdered. The police reported that, when questioned, McCoy acted extremely nervous and appeared to be withholding information about his whereabouts at the time of the murders. His alibi also didn't match his location based on cell phone data. Cell phone data showed he was either in the area of their home or near his home at the time of the homicides. At the time, McCoy lived only one block north of where Julie and Keegan lived. Area surveillance video showed a person approaching Julie's home from the north. Police reported that the same person was later seen walking back to the north around the time the fire started. McCoy also had small cuts to the palms of his hands that he claimed were from masonry work. A few months after the double murders, McCoy was arrested after ransacking his ex-girlfriend's apartment. While in custody, he either had a real seizure or faked a seizure and was taken to Integris Baptist Medical Center. While in the hospital, he attempted a dramatic and dangerous escape. After being uncuffed from the hospital bed to use the bathroom, McCoy ran out of his hospital room, naked as a jaybird, and was being chased by the police inside the Integris Baptist Hospital in Oklahoma City. 
During the chase, he ran into the room of 48-year-old Reginald Morrissey, who had been hospitalized after suffering a stroke. His doctor yelled to the police that his patient was in there, and at the same time, a nurse in the room could be heard screaming at McCoy to get off the patient. Oklahoma City officer Caleb Case and another nurse burst into the room and discovered McCoy standing on the helpless patient while trying to break the window. McCoy makes a few more attempts to break the second pane of glass before the officer got close enough to begin hitting him with a baton. At the same time, the staff tried to protect the patient from further injury after the officer discharged pepper spray into the room. At one point, while bleeding from his baton beating, McCoy asked if the patient was all right. Officer Case asked for a tourniquet to stop McCoy's bleeding. Officer Case then asked a second officer who had entered the room to hold McCoy so he could catch his breath after being hit with the lingering pepper spray that was deployed during the altercation. The medical staff, now suffering from the pepper spray, tended to McCoy's wounds, while other staff removed the patient. The patient sadly later died from his injuries, so McCoy's charges went from a burglary attempt to a murder charge. He remains under investigation for the murders of Julie and Keegan and is also a suspect in another nearby sexual assault. McCoy has not been charged with Julie or Keegan's death, and as of December 2022, this case remains unsolved. Annette Vail was born on December 7, 1965. In 1980, at the age of 15, Annette's family was having a yard sale at their home in Houston, Texas, when a 44-year-old man named Felix Vale caught the eye of young Annette. After Annette graduated high school, she and Felix went on a cross-country motorcycle trip and married. If only Annette had known that she was marrying a murderer who had killed his first wife and a girlfriend before meeting her. Four months later, after Annette turned 18, she collected $98,000 in life insurance from her father's estate, who had died years earlier. Annette's mother, Mary Rose, sold her house to Annette for $7,000. Months later, Annette returned to her mother's home without Felix. She said she wanted a divorce and was moving back in with her mother. At this point, Annette isolated herself in a room and spoke to no one, including Felix, who kept trying to call her. Felix eventually came to the home and was able to convince Annette to reconcile with him. This was a huge mistake, and he once again quickly manipulated her by having her sign over the deed to her mother's home that she now owned. Then a month later, she would take her name off the deed and leave Felix as the sole owner. Felix then forced Annette's mother to move out of the home. Annette then used her father's life insurance money to pay off Felix's loans and buy a car. At this point, there was around $77,000 left over, so they deposited $36,000 into a bank account and kept the other $41,000 in cash. When she was 18, the couple lived in Sulphur, Louisiana. On October 5, 1984, Felix told the neighbors she'd gone to visit friends in Denver, Colorado. But strangely, she was never seen again, and her family had heard of no plans for Annette to travel out of state. Her mother, Mary Rose, 
was suspicious of Felix right away for being involved in her daughter's disappearance and reported her missing over two weeks later. But Felix told the police a different story than he told the neighbors. He told them she suffered from mental illness and had left of her own accord, taken a bus from St. Louis, Missouri to Mexico, not Denver, Colorado. Felix also said she took all the remaining money from her father's life insurance policy with her when she left. In September 1985, almost a year after Annette's disappearance, Felix told her mother she had contacted him and told him she was traveling with two men among the natives in the jungle and had had a baby. Felix said he dropped Annette off at a Trailways bus station in St. Louis on September 16, 1984, but relatives reported seeing the couple over a month later. The police didn't believe Felix's explanation, mostly because the bus station he said he dropped her off at didn't even exist. There is not and has never been any Trailways station in St. Louis, only a Greyhound bus station between 11th and 12th Streets. About two months later, in December 1984, Felix filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences and desertion. He gave all of Annette's belongings and clothing to charity and said she allegedly said she wanted to disappear. Felix claimed he went to Mexico to search for Annette in either 1986 or 1987, but his passport shows no evidence of any such trip. He claimed he'd been in repeated contact with Annette since her disappearance, but never produced any proof of this, and his stories about their communications contradicted each other. Police have since seized the diaries he kept during the 1980s, but there is no mention of him having heard from Annette. Then, several years later, Annette's mother learned of another wife of Felix's that had gone missing before Annette. His first wife, Mary Vale, supposedly drowned in Louisiana on October 28, 1962. Felix said 22-year-old Mary had fallen in the Calcasieu River while running trot lines at night near Lake Charles, Louisiana. That section of the river was unsuitable for trot lines, and authorities found the trot lines still inside Felix's tackle box. Her younger brother believed she merely drowned while on a boating trip with her husband as he watched, unable to save her, and believed this for many years. Then, after 30 years of believing this lie, he got a call that would lead him to the truth. Annette's mother called him and said although he didn't know her, she wanted to talk to him about Felix. She explained that they had something in common— they both had loved ones that died mysteriously while involved with Felix. Her daughter disappeared, and his sister died in an alleged freak accident with Felix nearby. There was a third woman, Sharon Hensley, his girlfriend in 1970, who strangely went missing as well. Felix then wrote Mary Rose a letter accusing her of slandering him. He said Annette had emotional problems stemming from Mary's bad parenting and called Annette a zero-image whore and said he wouldn't reveal where she was even if he knew. Over 50 years later, after Mary's death, a pathologist examined the autopsy report and found evidence of foul play, including large bruises on Mary's neck and legs and a scarf in her mouth. The pathologist believes Mary was forcibly asphyxiated and possibly struck with an oar before her body went into the river. After Mary's death, 
Felix took his son, Bill Bell Jr., and moved to California. Felix was arrested for murder, held for three days, and then released without charge, and the case was never put before a grand jury. Felix had $150,000 in life insurance for Mary, but only collected $10,000 from the insurance company because of doubts about the manner of Mary's death. In 1970, before meeting Annette, he began dating Sharon Hensley, a native of Bismarck, North Dakota. They were involved with drugs, and that year, Felix's son Bill, who was only eight years old at the time, went to the police and told them his father kept drugs in the house and had forced him to use them and that he'd heard him confess to Mary's murder. Felix was arrested for drug possession, contributing to the delinquency of a minor and child abuse due to Bill's report, and the child went to live with Mary's parents. He pleaded guilty to the drug charge and was sentenced to six months in jail. California authorities passed Bill's information on to the police in Mississippi, but they still found insufficient evidence to prosecute Felix for Mary's murder. In 1973, Sharon disappeared but wasn't reported missing for over 35 years. Felix's explanation for her vanishing was similar to the story he gave about Annette. He said she had burned all her identification, told him she wanted to disappear and forget everyone she knew, and left with an Australian couple to sail around the world. To this day, she has never been heard from again. The FBI began investigating Felix as a possible serial killer in 1993. It's statistically highly improbable that he would coincidentally have one wife and one girlfriend who disappeared and one wife who died under suspicious circumstances. They interviewed one of Felix's girlfriends from the 1980s and she said he was physically violent towards her and eventually she got a restraining order against him. However, the FBI closed the investigation the following year without finding enough evidence to file charges. Felix and Mary's son, Bill, died of esophageal cancer in 2009 at the age of 46. Before his passing, he made a video statement of everything he claimed he'd heard his father say about Mary's murder. One of Felix's neighbors from the 1960s said Felix had cursed his first wife and claimed he'd killed her because she was pregnant again. The investigations into Mary's death and Sharon and Annette's disappearances were reopened in 2012 after Jerry Mitchell, an investigative reporter for the Mississippi newspaper The Clarion Ledger, ran some articles on the case. At this time, Felix was living in Mississippi. When Mitchell tried to interview him about Mary and the missing woman, he suddenly left the area, leaving some of his belongings behind. In May 2013, Felix was arrested in Commel County, Texas, and charged again with murder in Mary's 1962 death. At his trial, his attorney argued Mary's death was an accident, but three former friends testified that Felix had confessed to murdering her. In addition, two forensic pathologists said Mary's case was a homicide. In August 2016, nearly 54 years after Mary's death, Felix was convicted of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and his conviction was upheld in 2018. Felix was in his 70s when the jury reached its verdict in Mary Horton's murder. 
and Louisiana prosecutors have said they believe he killed all three women, making him at the time the nation's oldest suspected serial killer. In an interview, Felix claimed both Sharon and Annette were alive, and he knew where they were but wouldn't say where. Neither Annette nor Sharon Hensley has ever been found, and Felix has never been charged in their cases, which remain unsolved as of December 2022. Lashea Nay Stein was born on February 8, 2000, and lived in Aurora, Colorado. At the age of 16, she was an honor roll student at George Washington High School and dreamed of becoming a nurse. She had also gotten an internship at the University of Colorado Hospital. After 2 a.m. on July 15, 2016, she was seen on CCTV walking near a bus stop in the area of East Montview Boulevard in North Peoria Street. She left home without her mother's permission to meet an unknown person but never returned. Multiple witnesses would later report seeing Lachea around the Colfax Avenue area where a party was taking place. When Lachea left her home, she left behind her clothes, wallet, money, phone charger, and other belongings. She has no history of running away from home or getting into trouble and was scheduled for a job interview the next day at Firehouse Subs. The next morning, her family woke up and realized that Lachea was not at home. They then tried to reach her on her cell phone, but all calls were going straight to voicemail. They looked around the neighborhood, but to no avail. Finally, her family contacted the police, but they initially treated it as a runaway case, and it would be almost a week before the case was taken seriously. Lachea's family believes she was abducted by sex traffickers. There have been sightings of her reported in the Colfax Avenue area of Aurora, Colorado, with witnesses stating that the girl resembling Lachea was being kept drugged and forced into prostitution. Rumors began circulating about a dangerous man that had begun grooming Lachea for sex trafficking, but people were too afraid to turn him in. What they did say was that the man had trafficked Lachea out of state. One evening, a pimp working with the family gave them a tip that she was in room one at a hotel and he had recognized her by the scar on her chest. When police arrived, they found girls' clothes, but no one was in the room. Those nearby said that they had just left with Lachea about five minutes before the police arrived. There have been reported sightings of her in numerous states, including Kansas, Missouri, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Arizona. Another young woman that had been trafficked reported that she had seen Lachea and said she wanted to come home but was too afraid. Her mother learned during the investigation that her naive daughter had been communicating with other teens and young men that her mother didn't know, and they were not students at her school. She is now allegedly going by a different name and has lost weight, but that name is unknown. Her mother, Sabrina Jones, has not given up on finding her daughter, but as of December 2022, Lachea remains missing, and this case remains unsolved. William Billy Trimbach was born in 1966 and was very close to his parents and his sisters, Sarah and Buffy. 
In his senior year of high school, Billy played football and was nominated for King of the Homecoming. He met a girl named Suzanne in high school, and they would marry on July 20th, 1985. They moved to Snyder, Colorado, and were living on his grandparents' ranch when they became parents to a daughter named Ashley. But the marriage wouldn't last, and the couple divorced. He then married a woman named Cindy on Valentine's Day in 1992, and the couple moved to Stoneham, Colorado. Billy was described as a decent young man who was a good mechanic and never shied away from hard work. Unfortunately, Cindy had contracted HIV, which had developed into AIDS, and it was said that Billy was working as a mechanic to try to make enough money to cover her medical care. They had even traveled to Mexico to try to find a treatment to cure her disease. On their first anniversary, the couple was still living in Stoneham with their infant daughter and his nine-year-old stepson. That day was supposed to be a celebration, but instead, Billy had gone missing the night before. With Billy nowhere to be found, Cindy reported him missing. She told investigators she hadn't seen him since Saturday morning. Billy's nine-year-old stepson told investigators that Billy had left the house on Saturday morning with an unknown man who apparently had mechanical issues and needed Billy's help. That evening, Billy's body was found alongside a road in western Morgan County. Investigators say he was shot to death at an unknown location, and his body was dragged from a vehicle and left several yards north of the I-76 frontage road west of Wiggins, Oklahoma. Cindy told investigators that while out looking for Billy, she had driven past the area he was ultimately found in. This was strange because the location was 45 miles away from their home, and they reportedly didn't know anyone from that area. So what made her choose that area to search? According to investigators, items found near the dump scene matched items found in the Chevy Suburban Cindy was driving that night. In addition, small amounts of dried blood were found in the back seat of the Suburban and matched to Billy. Therefore, investigators theorize either Billy's body was in the Suburban at one point or someone who had Billy's blood on them was in the vehicle. Billy's wounds were consistent with those of a 9mm, and Billy happened to own a 9mm, but it was missing. Cindy had taken out a large life insurance policy shortly before Billy was murdered, and his name was forged on the insurance application, leading investigators to believe she may have taken out a hit on her husband. Just after Billy's funeral, Cindy moved to Butte, Montana. When she enrolled her son in a local school, she told school officials her son had seen his father murdered. The following year, Billy's stepson, who was then 10 years old, took a handgun to his elementary school in Butte and opened fire on the playground, killing another child. He was then placed in a psychiatric facility because he was too young to be charged with a crime. A couple of years later, investigators traveled to Butte and interviewed the stepson again. They say he admitted that he had lied about seeing Billy leave with another man that Saturday morning. He said he lied because he thought his mother was involved in Billy's disappearance. Cindy would die in 1994 from AIDS-related complications and took any information she had about Billy's death to the grave with her. This is what the Morgan County Sheriff's Office had to say about the case. 
Investigators have been hampered in this case due to bizarre circumstances, lack of evidence, plus many people involved were meth users and their information was either discredited by others or could not otherwise be corroborated. Two people may have been directly responsible for his death and planned to dump his body in Jackson Lake, but had to leave him on the side of the road instead due to mechanical issues. There are at least three different theories in his case. In one theory, investigators believe Billy may have been involved in drugs and was murdered because of a drug debt. Another theory is he was accidentally murdered after someone tried to intimidate him outside of a home in Wiggins. There's also the theory that Cindy may have arranged to have Billy killed for the insurance money and may have been involved in dumping his body. The sheriff's office said they had a suspect prepared to confess to the murder but took his own life in 1998 because he feared he would be the only person prosecuted. Nevertheless, investigators still believe there may be a killer on the loose, or at least people who know about Billy's murder. But as of December 2022, this case remains unsolved. Marilee Ruth Burt was born in 1955 and, at the age of 15, was living in Columbine Valley, Colorado. Marilee was the daughter of a family well-known for its car dealerships and described as energetic, bright, and ambitious, a girl who was excited about her future. On February 26, 1970, she met with the school counselor at Goddard Middle School in Littleton to plan her very first high school schedule. She was excited to try out for the high school cheerleading team and wore her green and yellow cheerleading uniform to class that day. Afterward, she cheered at the evening basketball game, and with no ride home, she decided to walk home from the school, which was less than two miles away. About a mile into her route home, her older brother Raymond, driving home, passed Marilee walking down Middlefield Road, but didn't initially recognize her because her hair was in pigtails, which she seldom wore. In addition, Marilee and her mother had miscommunicated about how she would be getting home from school that evening, so her brother would not have expected to see her walking home. As he drove on, Raymond recalled seeing a man in a pickup pull over to talk to the girl. But unfortunately, it was the last anyone saw of her, and she would sadly never make it home alive. The family began searching for her when Marilee didn't come home that night. That's when her brother began to believe that the girl he had seen walking had most likely been his sister, and she was probably snatched off the road or knew and trusted the person that stopped to talk to her and possibly offer her a ride. Raymond was able to provide police with a vague description of the man that Marilee had stopped to talk to. He described him as a 30 to 40-year-old white man with dark brown hair with a receding hairline and long square sideburns. Several witnesses reported seeing Marilee walking a route that included Berry Drive, Bowles Avenue, and Middlefield Road. The next day, searchers found her deceased nude body in Deer Creek Canyon. Her clothes, books, and purse were all gone and to this day have never been found. Marilee was found strangled and sexually assaulted, and 52 years later, this case is still unsolved. In 1998, 28 years after her murder, detectives going over the case found a viable DNA sample taken from Marilee's body in an evidence locker. 
and in the years since, authorities have used that DNA to exclude nearly two dozen suspects, including all members of her family, and even exhumed a suspect's body to obtain their DNA to compare. Marilee's parents have since passed away, leaving her younger family members to continue the search for answers. But as of December 2022, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.